Thank you for joining us for another episode of Baker Hosts Ad Nauseam, a podcast series focusing on new and trending advertising issues with an emphasis on the FTC and the NAD. I'm Amy Cotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. We're once again joined by Amy Mudge and Daniel Kaufman, two partners from Baker Hostetler's advertising, marketing, and digital media team. Together, they have decades of advertising experience and approach advertising issues from multiple perspectives. On today's episode of Ad Nauseam, Amy, Daniel, and their special guest, Randy Shaheen, also a partner on Baker Hostetler's advertising, marketing, and digital media team, will continue their deep dive into the FTC's recent health products compliance guidance document. This is the second episode in a three-part series, and today they will provide an overview of the science underlying much of the new guidance, with a focus on the red flags to avoid and closing with a discussion of some of the FTC cases that highlight the science. With that, welcome to Ad Nauseam, and let's turn it over to Amy, Daniel, and Randy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ad Nauseum and the second in our series of digging into the FTC's health guides to make sure everybody knows what they can and can't do uh, when making health promises about their products. Now, today's episode comes with a warning. There is going to be lots and lots of talk about science. We're going to try to make this not too painful. Actually, no guarantees because what we're going to be doing today is probably blinding you with science. And speaking of that, I might delay this science talk for a little bit and ask Daniel what his favorite 80s song is about science. Mine, of course, I already grabbed it. Thomas Dolby, Blinding Me With Science. So, okay, the easy one I could go for, Amy, would be Weird Science by Oingo Boingo, but just slightly too on point and obvious. I'm going to go with the physics theme of Kate Bush's running up that hill and the physics involved when one is indeed running up that hill. And and to be clear, huge fan of Kate Bush since the mid-1980s, not just from Stranger Things, but it was great to see her get that amazing recognition this past year. How about you, Randy? Well, I'm going to have to stretch maybe a little bit as well here. 80 (laughs) science songs didn't immediately come to mind with like a list of 15 or 20, but I'm going to have to pick, as you all know, I'm a big astronomy science fiction geek. So I'm going to have to go with Total Eclipse of the Heart, which I'm sure was written as an ode to astronomy. Okay, Daniel, thank you very much for bringing this podcast into today and being relevant for our Gen Z audience. Way to go. Excellent marketing. And Randy, thanks for playing. That is a terrible 80s song. I'm not sure if we're going to invite you back, but for today, we are very happy. We're very happy to have you here. So the first thing I want to ask Daniel with his FTC background is, do people at the FTC really read this science? Do they really take it seriously? Like how much do we have to become scientists to support our clients? You know, it's a great question, Amy. They really dig into the issues. And for me, it was one of the things I really enjoyed, you know, for the first seven years of my career when I litigated advertising cases, it was really fun to sort of dig into new and different scientific issues and really having to understand whether it was the chemistry of what was that issue. But, you know, primarily it was understanding RCTs and being able to evaluate them and talk intelligently with with the outside experts uh, you work on. It's funny, I worked on one case for quite a while. It was a case involving cellulite. And I remember 
we were in litigation and all of a sudden they gave us a new study that used a, a novel technique called photogrammetry to evaluate whether or not the product was improving the appearance of cellulite. And had no idea what photogrammetry was. Quickly found an expert, worked with them, got to understand the issue, got to understand sort of how to evaluate the science. And that is something that you sort of commonly do at the FTC. Issues pop up and you find people who are experts in the field and they're eager to talk, often eager to talk. Sometimes it was hard to find an expert. But generally, you'll find experts that are eager to talk about the issues and, and help you understand better. Okay. And Daniel, I guess the recent notice of penalty letters that came out on substantiation means we may all be reading a lot more science. Oh, yeah. The notice letters are a big deal, and they really do emphasize the importance of digging into the science and understanding the science. I mean, those letters went out to, I think it's more than 700 companies. The FTC is very serious about this issue. Okay. Mental note to self. Talk to Daniel after this podcast to see what else he learned from the scientists about cellulite removal. But we will focus on the task at hand today. I am excited once again to welcome back Randy Shaheen, my teacher, my mentor, my partner. He really taught me everything I know about how to approach clinical studies with a critical eye, and he does it pretty painlessly. I sort of like Bill Nye the Science Guy. So if I was going to come up with a nickname for Randy, maybe I'd say he's Bill the Lawyer Fellow, but that's not super cool. But he is a really nice guy, too. I think he likes me better than Bill Nye, who was very grumpy with me when I tried to take a selfie of him on the Acela once. But let's just dive right in. Randy, first, let's start with what are the different types of health claims and what does the FTC expect for support for each of the buckets? So thanks, Amy, and happy to join the two of you again. It's always fun. So I think traditionally we tended to maybe think about three tiers of science claims at the top or the highest level being what we sometimes call establishment claims, a claim that something is clinically proven. You've got people in white lab coats or with clipboards, something that connotes some type of clinical trial that was done to establish the claim. And then kind of one level beneath that just being a, a health benefit claim, weight loss claim, something that suggests the product is going to do something to make you healthier or better in, in some way. And then finally, more of a dietary supplement claim, a structure function claim. The product does something to support your immune system or support some part of your body or support heart health. I think the FTC's current health claims guides maybe collapse those top two. Is there really a difference anymore between an establishment claim where you're supposed to have you know, well-conducted clinical trials and a regular old health claim where if you look at the health claims guidance, probably you also need to have well-conducted clinical trials. So those top two tiers may be kind of collapsing together. And then you've got the structure function dietary supplement claims, which require less rigor and probably not for most of them, the full-blown clinical trial. All right. So focusing on those first two buckets, we're going to need science and we're probably going to need a randomized controlled clinical trial. How many do we need? That's a great question. For a while, the FTC had rolled out some consent order language in a few cases that really kind of put a marker down saying you have to have two. They got slapped down a little bit in the Palm Wonderful case. I think we talked about last time the commission entered said two Palm took that to the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit pushed back and said, well, actually, we think one would be sufficient. So obviously, you need to have at least one. Two is always better for lots of reasons. Second study kind of confirms the first result wasn't just based on chance. 
But at the same time, I've also heard people at the commission say, and I suspect Daniel has as well, that really having one really great study is better than having two kind of so-so studies. So I think you can definitively say two, but you need to have at least one really, really good study. So let's dive into the idea of what is a good study versus junk science. I get asked a lot of questions to say, well, my study's been peer-reviewed, it's been published. That means it's perfect, right? It means it's been peer-reviewed and published. (laughs) Beyond that, obviously it helps, right? And I think there maybe was a time when it was almost a silver bullet to say, yeah, this was peer-reviewed. I think more and more the agency tends to be a little more skeptical of those sorts of claims. And maybe to some extent, it reflects just the proliferation of journals. You know, Given the internet, there's so many journals out there. So it obviously helps that someone else has looked at your claims, looked at your data, has vetted it, kicked the tires, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And at the same time, it's also not the kiss of death that it wasn't peer-reviewed, it wasn't published. You can obviously expect the FTC to look closely at it and more and more they're actually asking for the raw data so they can do their own statistical analysis. And I think that reflects in part the fact that there have been a few cases where the FTC thought there was some messing around with the data. So peer review and and publishing, though, definitely helps. Is it a death knell to have conducted your own research internally? Do you have to use a third party? You don't have to. I think the FTC typically, if you're going to have two studies... I think the FTC's preference, right, is those be conducted independently and don't have the same researcher, whether it's your own in-house medical department, do the study or an outside researcher, don't have the same person do both studies because they may just be repeating the same mistakes all over again. So particularly if you're going to do two studies, make sure those are conducted by, by independent parties. So what else does a good study need to have? There's a number of things the FTC certainly points to. I would say that it all depends on the specific context and what you're studying and what you're trying to establish. But there are definitely some things that you ought to look for. And it's maybe not a red flag, but at least a yellow flag if they're not there. That includes probably first and foremost, this idea of a placebo, right? You want to have something to control for a placebo effect. Do people just think their headache went away because you're telling them you're giving them something that's going to make their headache go away? Or are people maybe taking better care of themselves because they're in a weight loss study and they're just taking a placebo, but because they know they're in this study, they're acting a little bit differently than they otherwise would. So placebo definitely is an important thing. But the problem is you can't always have a placebo or sometimes it's difficult. A food, for example, if you're trying to evaluate the benefits of orange juice, well, how do you create a placebo for orange juice? It's not always easy, particularly with foods. And then there are some claims where it's harder to imagine a placebo effect, right? If you're studying whether a product is going to help your hair grow back, it'd be great if you could, but it's pretty hard to use a placebo effect to grow more hair. I think a couple other things along with a placebo effect is this notion of double blind. If you have a placebo, you got to make sure nobody, including the researchers, knows who's taking the placebo and who's not. Because even for the researchers, it can impact how they evaluate the, uh, the participants. You want to have very clear and detailed protocols, including what you're trying to measure, what's considered success, because you don't want to, after the fact, kind of play around or tinker with what's considered success to measure what actually happened in the study. So have that nailed down in the first place. And then certainly the current health claims guidance, even more so than before, is a real downer in terms of relying on animal studies 
or in vitro studies, studies in the laboratory in a test tube versus actually using human beings to conduct the study. Okay, we've known for a long time that if you're studying rats, it's probably not going to work, even for cellulite. This in vitro piece, though, has me scratching my head a little bit. Can't you use lab measurements for something as long as you know there's not going to be a placebo effect? I mean, can blood or DNA lie? I do think there are probably some, again, it's all contextual, right? I think there are some instances where you can use in vitro tests. I've seen, for example, in vitro tests of the digestive system. You're trying to replicate what the digestive system looks like, but through a machine as opposed to an actual human being. There are limits, right? You can't just cut somebody open and look at their stomach. So I think in vitro tests can sometimes work. I think what you've got to be careful about is, for example, right, if you want to look at the digestive system, you got to make sure you're replicating the digestive system, that there isn't something in a person's digestive system, some enzyme, some body fluid that maybe impacts how the product works in a person as opposed to in the laboratory. Okay, so let's say we've designed a pretty good study, maybe not a perfect study, but we've designed it in a way that's credible. Once we have all the data in the door, what do we need to do with it to analyze it for claim support? So I think there's a a few things to consider here. Probably almost everybody's familiar with the old idea of you need to have an outcome that's statistically significant. So you want to make sure that the outcome isn't just the result of chance as opposed to actually the product, whatever you're studying, having an actual benefit. And so that's what statistical significance tries to measure, what the probability being you know, greater than 95% that the outcome is not the result of chance. But apart from statistical significance, more and more, there's also this notion of clinical significance. Is the difference, is the outcome, is the benefit meaningful to people? So the example I like to use is weight loss, right? If, if you can show that there is a statistically significant difference with respect to weight loss between your control group and your test group, right? The people on placebo lost less weight. Well, if the difference amounts to, you know, one pound over a six-month study, it might be statistically significant, particularly if you have a really, really large study. But is that really clinically significant? Are people really going to find it meaningful if they can take a product or use a product and lose one pound over six months, probably not. So both of those things you have to take into consideration. And then the other thing relates to crunching the numbers and playing with numbers, right? So for example, I talked earlier about the importance of having clear, well-defined outcome measures ahead of time. So you don't want to do what the FTC calls post hoc data analysis or sometimes p-hacking, which is okay, well, the data didn't turn out quite the way we hoped for the outcomes we were trying to measure. So let's go through the data. Let's kind of pick through the data and see if we can find some other outcome where we had a good result. There's a case the FTC brought a while back where that's exactly what the company did. They tried to find a different way of crunching the data to find an outcome that looked great. And the FTC is very dubious about that because as anybody who's a statistician can tell you, if you take a big set of numbers and you look at it you know, a hundred different ways, sooner or later, you're bound to be able to find a good outcome. And the FTC doesn't want you just kind of cherry picking through the data. What about mixing and matching studies? Sometimes that's called meta-analysis. Meta-analysis also, sometimes I've had clients pool data, pool studies, because maybe one study wasn't, had a 
positive outcome, but it wasn't enough of an outcome. The study wasn't large enough to have a statistically significant difference. But if you pooled the two studies, then you might be able to show statistical significance. My view on that is, and I have persuaded the FTC in at least one instance to look at a pool of analysis. I think it depends how similar the studies are. If you have studies that are very similar in terms of what you were studying, how you approached it, what the placebo was, the closer, the more identical the studies are, the easier I think it is to group them together. And conversely, the more differences there are in, in what was studied and how you studied it, the harder it is to group them. Okay, so that's a pretty good overview of what the FTC is looking for with clinical studies. Daniel, can you talk about the new information that they've given us as far as what they expect for epidemiological studies? They don't expect to see them too often. I mean, that is the starting point. They do admit that, look, there is absolutely enormous value in epidemiological or observational studies, and they're really helpful to show an association between a product or an ingredient but they don't prove causation. So that's the big focus on the FTC. Um, you know, for example, people who take consume a certain ingredient frequently may over a long period of time have lower cholesterol. You're showing a link, but you're not showing a causal link there. You're showing an association, but not a causal link. So the FTC has set off this new standard on such studies, and they say they will accept high-quality epidemiological evidence to substantiate a claim, but in limited cases where one it is considered to be an acceptable substitute for RCTs by experts in the field, which is makes a lot of sense. And two, and this is the interesting one, where RCTs aren't otherwise feasible. The FTC doesn't really explain how you sort of assess feasibility. Is it, is it about cost? Is it about ethics? Is it about time? But certainly, if the FTC looks at what you're providing and says, well, interesting study, but an RCT would have been feasible, you're going to have a conversation with them about feasibility. And I think that will be interesting to see how that develops over the next few years, that specific standard that's in the standard they put out now. Well, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but now that Randy's talked us through what the FTC expects for clinicals and Daniel's talked a little bit more about their views and beliefs about epi studies, at the end of the day, the FTC reminds us that we still need to look at the totality of the evidence. So you might have a great epi study, and then you, that may be backed by a really gold standard, well-conducted clinical study. But if there's 10 other clinical studies in the market that cast doubt on or have different results than your great study, the FTC says you can't just ignore it. And so this idea of not only conducting your, your own work, but stepping back and saying, what else have other people done? What are other studies saying is an important component to make sure that your body of evidence is going to be sufficient substantiation. So, you know, it's interesting, Amy, you know, you look at all this and, you know, what is a company to do? And the reality is, look, the FTC has been active on health claims for so many decades. This is an evolving area. These guides are a push forward from the agency. Everything in the guides we've seen in some cases, certainly there are concepts here that have not been proven in court. That hasn't happened yet. But look, it's a clear message from the agency. Companies need to look closely at this new guidance and expect that if they're interacting with the FTC and the FTC is looking at one of their product claims, the FTC is going to be saying, look, this is what we've said in our guidance. Why aren't you doing this? Why don't you have the support you should? So really important for companies to get a better handle on what the FTC expects going forward. And with that, that is all for us today on Ad Nauseam. We thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Amy, Daniel, and Randy. 
If you have any questions for them, their contact information is in the show notes. For more information on the latest developments in ad law, visit our Ad Attorneys Law blog at www.adattorneyslawblog.com. That's A-D-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-S-L-A-W-B-L-O-G.com. And check out all the Ad Nauseam episodes by subscribing to Baker Hosts wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.